0: The fruit clearly doesn't fall too far from the tree. Kim Holmes-Ross is truly her mother's child. Listen as Kim describes growing up in Evanston, attending District 65 schools and Evanston Township High School, and why she is drawn to the work she is passionate about, serving her community. Kim opens up about her family, her childhood, and why she has chosen to follow in her mother's footsteps. Kim is giving back to the community and is unapologetic about her work and her love for it. Listen to understand.
1: Welcome to Evanston Rules. I'm Larise Bell here with Ron Whitmore. Today we have the pleasure of having... Kim Holmes-Ross as our guest. Kim follows her mom on Evanston Rules, and we are so excited to have you.
0: So Kim, you know you got some big shoes to fill.
2: And how did you guys let me follow my mama? I don't- The, the
0: old saying, it says
2: that fruit does not fall too far from the tree. Okay. I'm born and bred right here in Eton by way of my parents, <laughs> who both migrated here from the South. I'm sure you guys heard that story but grew up right in the fifth ward. Mom and dad were really different people. You guys met my mom, really, you know, a activist, and she always has been, I always watched her doing that. And so my father, who was known as Wild Bill, was this trick motorcycle rider. So I knew really early on that my parents were really different people, but it was okay, you know, we're together and in love and had this family, but, we were really confident enough to be themselves. So it really was great for me growing up because I got to see being comfortable in your own skin and wearing, you know, who you are. So I had a great time growing up.
0: Can't, can't know if you know this, but the last long ride your father did to Kansas City, Missouri, I was with him.
2: Oh, no, I didn't right?
0: Huh? I just got my motorcycle, my Harley, and a bunch of us from Evanston rode down to Missouri and ended up riding back with your father. And Mm -hmm. it was a very, very memorable experience. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that, Ronnie. You know, Wild Bill's motorcycle probably was the fastest Harley that anybody had. And it was just great how the younger fellas rallied behind him, whether it was when we stopped to get something to eat or when we stopped to fill up for gas. All the fellas, about 15 of us, were just very nurturing of Wild Bill. At one point, he seemed to get a little tired. Mm -hmm. And because I think he'd been a little sick during that time. Yes. And one of the fellas said, hey, man, why don't you ride in the car and I'll ride the motorcycle home for you. And he said a few choice words, but getting in that car and not being on a motorcycle definitely wasn't an option. And he proceeded to get on that bike and ride it like he was 25 years old for the next five and a half hours. And it was just a beautiful thing. Awesome. That
2: was his last ride, Ronnie.
0: Yes. Yes. That was his
2: last ride. Um, He, in August, and he passed away in October. And he was determined to, it was Black Rodeo that they do every year for the Black Motorcycle Riders. And he was a part of the inception of that in the 70s, because I guess in his own way, he was an activist, because um, Harley really discriminated against didn't want black riders, didn't want black riders representing them. He went to them for sponsorship and they told him, no, he didn't have the audience he was looking for. So Mm -hmm. they made their own. Wow.
1: And so when he heard that from Harley, what happened? I see that there are plenty of black folks who ride Harleys, but how did he feel and what was his response? Well, I
2: mean, very hurt because my father was a military man. So he wanted everything made in the USA. I'll even say what he called the other kind of bikes, but it was only a Harley. It only could be, you know, a, a Harley. But my dad went back then and re- rebuilt his motorcycle, as Ronnie referred to it, it as one of the fastest around. He rebuilt it. He took it completely apart, built his own engine, built his own, I forget what they call it, because he, he didn't patent it. Um, but Harley actually ended up using it. It's the clutch system or the reverse system. I have to ask one of my brothers. But he took it in stride and kept right on moving. Did his own thing. They started doing their own black rodeos and the black bike shows and you know, almost like the chilling circuit.
0: But you know, to think about that, right? He rebuilds his bike, couldn't get a sponsorship from Harley. And just like always in history, the black man with the black invention gets taken away and people make bazillions of dollars on it. So what, what was that, again, piggybacking on Larissa's question, what was that conversation like?
2: Well, the conversation was really pushed through in, in our house. You know, you, you can't let it stop you. And unfortunately, my parents grew up in the dead of the civil rights where people were not going to give you a break. And to that man, it was, don't stop, keep going. And, and he did. And he made the best. And in his world, he was the best. And really made people feel good about being who they were. So it was a great model to follow.
1: Absolutely great role models and people who believe in community service. And that's awesome. But just because we come from people who have been there doesn't mean that we keep up with it. And you really have paved your own path with commitment and passion. And it's it's something to really be proud of.
2: Well, let me tell you, really life's passion and my life's work by accident. <laughs> I really didn't think this is what I would be doing. I, I watched my mom do it and was like, oh, no, not for me. And I went to school. Well, I went on a tour of schools, but that's another story. Um, and when I finally did get my degree and I got it in marketing, landed a job in Haiti. And my mother at that time, who was the director of Family Focus, uh, said, look, I got a position in this vocational training program for teen moms. Come on, get your life together. We should find somebody in three months. That was in September of 1989, and I stayed until August of 2007. Um, So almost 18 years, because the first day I knew that I was supposed to be making a difference. I was supposed to be helping somebody make their lives better in some way.
0: The fruit definitely does not (laughs) fall too far from the tree.
2: You fall into it and you fall in love with it, because either you love it or you don't, because if you love it... I mean, you're all in, you're all in because it takes every piece of you, I promise you, when you're out there trying to fight the fight and and have those equitable outcomes and and good things for good people. So either you're all in or you're not.
1: You are all in and you talk about equitable outcomes. Tell me, what does that mean? Because I think some people really don't know. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, We've been working so long with equality and people think that everybody should get the same thing and everybody needs the same thing. And we know better now. Equity is giving people what they need, what they need, and meeting them where they're at to have these, what we call outcomes, so people can live good lives and whatever that good life may be. Because my good life might not be your good life, <laughs> and it can still be equitable. So let me piggyback on the
0: equitable outcomes at Evanson rules we talk a lot about equity action and and you mentioned giving people what they need how do liberals
2: share well a lot of them don't but but and, and i think maybe i should even rephrase giving people what they need we want to support people and empower people uh, to be able to acquire what they need. The short answer is give, but the long answer is we wanna empower and support people and and help them acquire, whether that be skills or or tangible goods. But I think we have to get the equity message out. Nobody's looking for anything. No, we don't need people to give and and support or fund, I shouldn't say support, because you definitely need the moral support. But we're not looking for funds. And when I say we, I mean collectively as a community, So when we talk about education,
0: Mm -hmm. uh, there was a gentleman that spoke, I don't know, five or six years ago, had a great conversation. I forgot his name, but he was talking about equity at the high school. Okay. And he challenged white folk that had all the resources to support the district in ensuring that more resources were provided to students that were victims of the gap in education. And the audience didn't address that very well. I heard a lot of gas. I heard a lot of pushback. Who was in the audience? It was an audience of Evanstonians.
2: Mm-hmm. So Evanston. you
0: know, when you come to a meeting at the high school, you're going to get black, white, brown. Everybody's going to be there. And everybody's going to say or embrace the kumbaya conversation until my child gets less than this poor black child.
1: Or until that exactly that poor black child gets more and does better
0: and has more opportunities, then what does that look like? So, so when we talk about the equitable outcomes, how do you, from a social action perspective, convince people that it's
2: okay? Well, I guess I'll start with, and, I, and I'm gonna go back to your example um, about supporting a school district, because I might have gasped as well, because I think we should be supporting and empowering families. And I think my convincing will be we can make families better by having affordable housing, by having job opportunities, uh, by having better support within the family so they can support this child. We can't just support the child and not support the families. Then we can make community better. Got it. And we don't all live in heaven, but we have to really have that conversation. We have some real disparities here. And we always have. And how do we begin to make that change? Well, I think we're at a moment in time, Larice, where we can't. I really do, because we always have. I'm glad you said that. But right now, between COVID, the racial unrest, the violence, it's all out on the table. It's no more hiding behind uh, the tree. It's here. And it's time to do something. And we have a generation behind us that is pushing the agenda that I really believe are going to continue to try to make some things happen. And we have to stand behind them and, and do that and, and, and support that. But they've always been there, you're absolutely right. But it's time to make to the action steps, it's time. How do we show that support? Oh, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways. Um, getting connected with the various social um, service agencies, especially the Community Foundation, which is headed up huge fundraising efforts over COVID-19. And I keep talking about COVID-19 because I don't want all these great things that happen to go away once the pandemic is over. And and I'm afraid of that. We unearthed that 80% of the people we had surveyed and and got in touch with were suffering from food insecurity. Mm -hmm. People are hungry right here in town, okay? So we rallied behind that. We fundraised. We're beating people. But what happens when this is over? What happens when the funds run out? So I think, Larissa, to answer your question, we connect ourselves to agencies who are doing the work. I don't think anything has to be recreated. You have people who are doing the work. So if people are interested, they need to attach themselves to these agencies that are out there.
1: Right. I've heard people talk about how Evanston is not as bad as the west side or as the south side. And that might be so, but for someone who is hungry, someone who can't pay their bills, what's worse?
2: Yeah, it has to feel essentially the same. You can compare the west side. I worked on the west side for a decade. I was at Orr High School from 2007 to Mm -hmm. 2017. And I got to tell you, it was the best professional development that I ever received because it it gave me perspective. It gave me perspective that 45 minutes down the road, things were really different. And then when I came back to Evanston and and working in Evanston, I came back every night. But when I came back to Evanston, then I realized, well, wait a minute, not 45 minutes down the road, next door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) To me, people are suffering. Down the block. So we have to really be cognizant and really know that we have some work to do.
0: How do we in Evanston tell those hungry families that we care about you when Robert Crown just spent $100 million, if not more, to get their facility rehabbed? And that was through public and private donations. And we can't do an upgrade to Fleetwood, Jourdain, or Foster Center.
1: How do we as
0: Evanstonians, as
1: people who say we care, as people who have Black Lives Matter signs so many yards, find a way to be comfortable with that? How can we be comfortable with that
2: kind of disparity? Well, we sh- we shouldn't, and we have to do it with dignity. And and that's what we're not doing. Um, I, I work with a group of advocates are literally the families that they seek to empower. So they are community members who are advocating and learning to advocate for themselves. And over the pandemic, they were in some of the food lines and getting dishes and food for their children. And they told me, they gave me a call, they're like, we're out here like pigeons. It says, all black and brown people out here, and we feel like pigeons, and they're throwing us crumbs. Mm. People shouldn't feel like that. No. It
1: shouldn't always be needs, not wants. Yeah. Right? Does, does, does racism exist
2: in Evanston? Absolutely. And maybe I shouldn't say absolutely, but there's some disparities. There, there's some racial disparities, period. We know there's a racial disparity in education, okay? And I don't know if that's racist, but we know there's a clear line. <laughs> there's a clear line between the black and brown students and the white students right here in town. Um, and we can't say that's racist behavior, but there's definitely some institutional things that have happened. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, for over 50 years, this racial achievement gap has existed. We know that. And and it's getting larger and larger. That's what's alarming. If it was getting smaller, and we were closing in on it and making gains, you could feel a little better. But they're not. Um, it's, it's just as increased. So we're doing something wrong. And what worries me the most about it is we're doing something wrong, but what are we doing about it?
1: Now, going back to when Ronnie mentioned that Robert Crown got perhaps $100 million in fundraising to rebuild and redo and renew, yet Fleetwood Jourdain can't get that kind of money. Now, a lot of people might not recognize, people in Evanston might recognize it, but What is the difference between Robert Crown
2: and Fleetwood Jourdain? The Fifth Ward and and the Second Ward, or is that the Sixth Ward? It's the Fifth Ward. Fleetwood Jourdain, Family Focus, all of that is in the Fifth Ward. All of those buildings are in desperate need of some rehab. Family Focus is, you know, really on its last leg. There's no library. There's no school. It's the fifth ward, so the big difference is location and the families they serve. So, 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 wait, specifically, though,
1: we understand what the fifth ward is. Mm -hmm. What really, if we're continuing to break this down and anybody come in with it, we want to have a conversation about it. What is the difference between
2: Robert Crown and Fleet and
0: and white people?
2: Absolutely, money, black and money. Economics. There it is. So that's it. Race and economics. I, I can't think of anything else, you know. And I might add to the the
1: Black Y, Community Hospital. Each time there is a space that we might have in our areas that really functions to build our community and build up our children and support our community. Those and, support places our do- and
0: support our dollars. And support our dollar. Those
1: places are closed down, those p- places are, they disappear, right? And yeah. then what happens? We fold into, but when do they fold into us? Without us disappearing.
2: Yeah, well, they haven't, and, and we talk a lot of, about it, but the thriving, you know, black community. You know, when we took care of ourselves, when we took care of ourselves, everything was good. We had our own businesses, your own hospital, your own why, And the, that's when things were segregated. And all of a sudden, segregation wasn't good. What was conversations about race like at the dinner table? Well, you know what? I was so grounded in who I was, which is so great. I wouldn't ever want to be anything else but Black. It was just, you know, it was the thing to be. And what was really great about that, I actually went to Martin Luther King Jr. Laboratory School which was one of the first experiment schools in the nation, in Progressive Evanston, where people or kids from all over the city came to school together and were bused from all over the city. So it didn't matter if you lived across the street, you still took a bus because the idea was you you started on this uh, level playing field. Everybody... Kind of was the same. And it was great because that was the equality area of um, era. But it really, we were in this bubble, but it really gave you a chance to really love who you were. So between my parents loving themselves and loving them, and I would go to this experimental school where it's free to be you and me, and, you know, it was a great experience. And it really taught me how to navigate the world, I think, in a different and unique way way, but never losing my blackness or who I was at the core, which is really great. And I owe that to my parents.
0: One of the things that, that I've learned from about three or four of our guests on Evanston Rules that have talked about their experience at King Lab. And the thing that continues to stand out to me is that everyone was bust. Everyone. To a location. Black, white, Brown kids. So everybody came in with a equal playing field. A mm-hmm. shared, experience. As shared yep. experience. And the beauty of what Evanston could be is while that was an experiment, I wish they would have kept Foster Center open, bus white kids at Foster Center. That would have mm-hmm. been, been equity action. But you, they created that level playing field. And that experiment seemed to work for a period of time, not a long period, because we still talked about the gap. And and I'm sure there are other variables that that came into play. But everyone that has talked about being one of those first few
2: classes that attended King Lab had a valuable experience one of the best of my life and like I said if it had a soundtrack I'm gonna date myself but if you guys remember Marlo Thomas and the the free to be soundtrack I promise you that was us but no (laughs) but just being an independent learner and that's where the gap came in because either it was for you or it wasn't Mm. and like for me it was great for my brother it wasn't Mm. and you could choose if you wanted to do math that day.
0: How so? How? Why wasn't it great for your brother? And why was it great for you? Because I think that's going to be the crux of when we talk about the gap and who's experiencing the gap more so and discipline more so. Yeah,
2: well, my, my brother is a, a boy. <laughs> so he wasn't quite as disciplined, probably as studying. I'm an independent learner. I like to read anyway. So those are the kind of things I was going to do. And Acting King Lab, you had the freedom to choose whether you were going to go to math or read or write or whatever. And it didn't show up until junior high when there was time for these real classes. We, you know, like, oh, my God, does Zia know how to read or do math or whatever? But it really shows, I think, in knowing your child and giving them that support. And not that my parents didn't know, but we were in an experimental school, so we didn't have traditional testing or report cards it was sixth grade when it showed up but a lot of times our black boys who'd rather play football basketball and when they had those kind of choices as opposed to reading this book it, it shows up mm-hmm.
1: and, and i'm i would say that it's not simply that these boys want to be active
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: that people aren't teaching to them
0: or they then see themselves in the learning
1: Yes. Right. No. No. Kim, I want to go back uh, to a moment where we talk about uh, parents being the first teachers and how we want to, how you want to not just go after or try to help the individual, but the families look very different in each home. So without maybe the traditional support, how do we help? people who don't have the traditional mom, dad, or someone really there to show them the way?
2: Well, we have to connect them with resources. And and we have to know that there are resources out there, there's mentors, and mentorships out there. There are people who care out there. But getting these kids connected, and we have to usually do that through the school system. If kids are nowhere else, they're at school. So, you know, not to put any more work on teachers because, boy, they have enough. And we definitely need more social workers where we can make sure kids are getting the support um, that they need. Because you're right, people don't always have traditional families and and ways in which to get support.
1: But so, Kim, you got the blessing of having two very exceptional
2: parents. How has that impacted you? I saw this very strong Black woman growing up. I think I've lived my life a lot like her, I've, and I never had a second thought on, on anybody else to be, but strong. You just did it. You you took care of your family. You went to school. You fought for your community. And And, and that's just the way it was. And with a whole heart, you did it. So... My experience was a very positive experience because I I had this strong woman, and not only my mother, my grandmother. I grew up in a multi-generational home, so my mother could do all these great things for Evanston, because my grandma was at home with me and my brother, making you know, cooking dinner and and getting everything together. Mm. Um, So that was a huge thing in my life. So I had these strong women around me.
1: We often forget about the multi-generational households and how important those are. And especially with black families, the importance of the auntie, the importance of
0: grandma, the importance of the mother. When your multi-generational, strong, black, beautiful self shows up
2: in a room with all white folk, what do they get? They get the full package. (laughs) They get the full package. Good morning, it's just me, I'm me all the time. Now I don't, I'm not even a code switcher. I've tried to remain professional, but I don't take myself out of who I am. There it is.
1: It's important and we've needed to be strong, but it's also important to have the other pieces recognized because that's what makes us everything, right? we're not only strong, we're sensitive, we're thoughtful, we're smart, we're kind, we're deserving. We can do what we need to do. What are some of the challenges that you faced being a strong black woman, not just in Evanston, but in the world?
2: Hmm. Well, cause sometimes when you show up in the room, as who you are, Every, everybody's not with it. So you have to take it and, and figure it out. But what I have learned to do is really I don't compromise my integrity yes. or my values. values. You like it or you love it. Now, I need my job. <laughs> so I'm gonna <laughs> do what I need to do for that. But And what we, I think, well, what we can best teach our children and, and, and generations behind us, show up with who you are. So you need to be grounded in that and, and, and show up. So unpacking
0: our history, right? This critical race theory thing, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, America's always giving us these buzz terms, we come up with them, whether it's diversity, whether it's equity, whether it's inclusion, and now it's critical race. While our history is factual, but why is it in Evanston, in this place that celebrates its diversity, why is a superintendent getting death threats Why is a white woman suing the district for a dollar? Cause she says they're teaching racism. So this critical race theory, I mean, what are the symbols in Evanston gonna do with
2: it? You know, Ron, this is not my Evanston. I, I, I just have to say, I'm so disappointed by things that are happening. And I know it was much more of a bubble then. And I felt like I lived in a bubble inside of a bubble. I often talk about when kids grew up my age and their parents were in the thick of civil rights, that I felt like they protected the kids so much from it, at least mine did, because they didn't want that pain because they were so in it. So I was so removed from it for so long over the protection of my family. Everything's great. (laughs) Everything is good because that's what they needed to happen and needed to to do. It was was maybe the best idea, no, Um, but that's what they needed to do to protect um, their children. So then when you get into the real world, (laughs) it was very, excuse me, very surprising. It was very naive.
1: So speaking of being naive, don't we deserve to be able to be naive? Shouldn't we be able to Think about good happening and not be afraid when we leave the house or afraid when we go to school that people aren't going to see us or hear us or listen to us or give us opportunities. Shouldn't we be able to believe that when people are our friends, that they're our friends? Really? Ideally. Let's talk about the Fifth Ward. This has been a part of you, a part of your history. We've had these moments. We're talking about reparations, about putting a school in, but we've been talking about all these things for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I also noticed, because I've been away for a long time, as I've been back, that the Fifth
0: Ward looks real different now. And before you answer, I just want to put it on record. That Fifth Ward school is gone open.
1: But guess who's going to go? It's
0: going to open with a 60-40-70-30 split, white kids to black kids. And it's going to open for the community that's coming.
2: I concur. I concur. Yeah, It's because it is coming. But to Larissa's point, the fifth ward is not the same. The Black population in Evanston, I want to say we're 16%, but I think that it may be less. It's mostly senior citizens, so we're not going to have the young people or the kids to even be at the schools. And White folk are living at the dead end of Jackson. Beautiful. They're living on Payne Street. Yes. Jackson, Wesley, Payne, yeah. And they have children, so these are families. So, yeah, this is not going to be a fifth ward school designed for Black folks in Evanston, which was what they wanted back after the foster
0: school. So here's so, what else I'll say. If there was equity in Evanston, once that school opens, the Evanston community would do this. They would create that 70-30, 60-40 split, but ensure that it was populated by Black students, which they're not going to do either.
2: No. Because it's going to be built a neighborhood school.
0: Exactly. So,
2: so can we talk then about, this may
1: seem like a leap, but to me, it's right there. How do we say Black Lives Matter as we do this? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean when you have a sign in front of your home in a historically Black neighborhood, if you're not Black, and you come in and you've been able to buy a house that you get for a certain amount of money, that was owned by a Black family. So when so you get an appraisal.
0: You get the appraisal for 200000 You end up selling it for 180000 They keep it for a year. Now it's worth 400000
1: So they're making money on our loss. And is it their responsibility to be a participant in understanding what is happening to the Black community? Because that, to me, speaks to Black Lives Mattering. Or do Black lives only matter when what? What does it mean? We I think we've gotten so comfortable with all these terms,
2: but we're not acting them. We're not living them. And I, I think the predatory lenders and realtors—I think those are the people who should be held more accountable. Right. There's no way in the world that they should be allowed this to happen. They should have some set of guidelines, which it doesn't seem uh, to happen. It's almost redlining the opposite way. <laughs> all over again the well, I mean, way. well because we used to be redlined where we'd have to go in one certain area okay now the same area we're saying to white folks hey, go buy over here here's this is going to be your investment again reverse,
0: reverse redlining and you, you can
2: get it. a good deal you can get a great deal oh somebody else is back somebody else has been there for generations and may have lost the home, may need to sell them for whatever reason. So we're seeing it come full circle. And that's pretty scary. I mean.
1: And this is before we've ever actually even had it work in our favor. Right, right. right. So so we miss the moment by them then saying, well, now it's improved, but it's no longer a space that we can exist. And, and and listen, I understand that we as black folks have opportunities and choices to live elsewhere and to do other things, but we are still suffering and there are still problems around it. And it is very much the gentrification of pushing people out. That's it.
0: That's it. It's it's the push. Yeah, Kim, there are those of us that can still make it anywhere in Evanston. Right. There are those of us that can afford the taxes in Evanston. But the reality is the Evanston that you said, you know, not is here. And in 15 years, it's going to be very interesting what the black population is going to look like.
2: Absolutely. And Louise, you said we missed the window, but there was a time. <clears throat> my mother talks about it um, in the fifth ward when they wanted to, people wanted to live in the fifth Ward. black folks wanted to be together. Okay, They had everything they needed Businesses. in the fifth ward and they were community and, and loved it. It wasn't that they maybe realized they got pushed over there or whatever, but it was community. They didn't want or need to be anywhere else in, the, in a moment in time.
0: We could shop black, Kim. Yeah. So, I mean, there was so many places we could go to make sure the black dollar in Evanston was circulating in that community. They could
2: shop Black. They could go to school Black. All the activities. Yes, I station, clubs,
0: Grocery stores. Yes. Churches.
2: Automotive shops.
0: Automotive right. shops.
1: Yes. So oh, tell that. me, what was your fifth ward like when you were growing up?
2: My fifth ward growing up, my fifth ward had begun to change. Some of the businesses, you know, had begun to close, but we were still community. I knew everybody on that four block radius over there between Leland, Lamar, McDaniel, church. Everybody on the swing, you knew their families. I went to King Martin Luther King Jr. Laboratory School, so I had a different experience. I did not go to a neighborhood school, but I knew my neighbors. That was a pivotal moment for me though. In my neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I don't
1: ask that because I don't know. Yeah. I ask that because I want people to understand the fifth ward and the opportunities and the joy and the safety and the
2: community. We never went home in the summer. We left in the morning. I don't even think we ate. I don't even know if we ate lunch. I don't know. But I knew we got to come home when those streetlights came on, but we were outside. We was on bikes. Nope. We were, and there was no moment where, oh my God, I'm not safe. Or I, or my parents, because they're the ones who put us at the house, like, go on, get out and play. But that's gone. That was gone for my children, my younger children. My older ones were still OK. But like Nico, it, it, the kids just didn't start to come outside. The video games took over right. and the neighborhoods looked different. And I think that growing up, your relationships
1: in high school and college and grade school, how diverse was your circle of friends and how has that changed at all? Has it grown?
2: Well, I got to tell you, in elementary school, very diverse. Again, I went to Martin Luther King, MLK, so very diverse. When I went to junior high, I wanted to follow some of those same friends to Haven instead of my neighborhood school, Skiles. So I, I went to Haven and I had those same friends. But those same friends lived over on Grant and, okay. and the surrounding streets of Haven. So it began to be a little different for me after school, because see the difference at King Lab, you were bust. Everybody was bused. Everybody's on the same level coming into school. Everybody takes the bus in, takes the bus out. But when you're walking from junior high and everybody, all the black kids are going across the bridge on Simpson. Now the white kids are going, you know, north towards central, just at that split. It's like, it's, I mean, it's real. It's so visual. And so by eighth grade, my circle began to change because of circumstance. You're going home with the kids. You walk with the kids. begin so to be free, um, friends with um, more Black kids and do activities with more Black kids. I was still friends with my white friends, but not as close. And then by the time I got to high school, just a few good white friends that are still friends today, um, but the circle got smaller and smaller and smaller. And how did you feel? How, what did you um, notice?
1: this? Were there any conversations?
2: There were conversations at home. I, I don't think I ever confronted the friends because I did have some feelings, especially that junior high
0: yeah. feeling. Your mom tells the exact same story yeah. about how she had some white friends in middle school. And then by the time it got to high school, those friends disappeared. The,
1: yeah. They were told that they could not any longer have these same relationships. Yeah. yeah. And I, I
2: don't know, you know, the t- time time it probably changed, but it just wasn't convenient to have these relationships, and that's not the circles you ran in. But you feel kind of different. Is it me? Am I good enough? What is it? And being twelve and thirteen didn't help, you
0: know. Or you just found a group of people that you want to hang with.
2: Well, I that's it eventually. But I did have feelings about those other things around
0: it. But we also know from
1: history
2: that as much as
1: we might be admired as we are young, we aren't as safe as we grow older. This is the right. message. And so it does make us feel some kind of way. Yeah, And exactly. rightly so, because there's this part of the world that wants it to be that we're so strong that we don't have feelings, that we don't get hurt, that we don't bleed the same way. Mm-hmm.
2: Ms. Frieda worked a family focus and she always said, water rises to a same level. Water rises to its same level. You're always going to meet the people who are doing what you do. And I have found that so true throughout my life. And you're right. We shouldn't feel bad about it. These are my people. (laughs) Last but
1: not least, who is the most important person to you? Who has had the biggest effect on you?
2: Oh, my gosh. That's so hard. That's so hard. And 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 Larissa, I can't name one. I, I can't. Name one because they would be my grandmother, my mother, my father, and my children. Having children changed my life, so I I, I can't name one. And it's just like you love everyone for different reasons, you know. And they poured into my life, but yeah, they're all amazing.
1: And that speaks to you saying it's not about going after one individual; it's about the family. Absolutely. Keep on- I want to thank everybody for joining us today and coming along on this journey, and that you'll follow along with us as we continue to air a new podcast. You can find us at evensonrules.com We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we look forward to hearing from you.
0: Aloha!